KTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 15th of November. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on Radio 3. The board of Twitter has agreed to a 44 billion US dollar takeover offer from the world's richest man, Elon Musk. He made the unsolicited bid to take the company private less than two weeks ago and said Twitter had tremendous potential that he would unlock. A social media giant initially rebuffed Mr Musk's bid but it will now ask shareholders to vote to approve the deal. Applications for the second round of Hong Kong's employment support scheme, which was introduced in 2020 to help businesses affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, will open on Friday, and it's expected companies can receive the money from early May. Eligible firms can claim up to 8,000 Hong Kong dollars per month to help pay the salary of each eligible worker from May to July. Labour Minister Lo Chi Kuong said that he hopes the new round will bolster business confidence and boost the job market. Representatives of the fund management industry said on Monday that continuing travel restrictions are chipping away at Hong Kong's competitiveness as an international financial hub. And they called on authorities to provide a roadmap for a full reopening as soon as possible. The Hong Kong Investment Funds Association is also urging the government to stop suspending flights for airlines that bring in COVID-positive passengers. Beijing is racing to track a COVID-19 outbreak that may have been spreading in the capital for a week. The city yesterday reported 21 COVID-19 cases for April the 24th. The city has locked down dozens of residential compounds and told inhabitants of the eastern district of Chaoyang to be tested three times this week. And last night, officials said mass testing would take place in another 11 of Beijing's 16 districts. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by John Schofield at Tempest Investment and Le Shah from BBVA Research. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. In a volatile session on Wall Street, U.S. stocks recovered from a steep sell-off in the morning session, prompted by concerns over the economic impact of the lockdowns in China. The S&P 500 index closed 0.6% higher at 4,296, having dropped as much as 1.7% earlier in the day. The Dow rebounded from losses of almost 500 points to close 238 points higher at 34,049. The Nasdaq Composite Index rose 1.3%, ending the session at 13,005. Shares of Twitter rose 5.7% in New York to $51.70 after the board of Twitter agreed to a $44 billion takeover offer from Elon Musk. Twitter shareholders will receive $54.20 for each common share they own, which is a 38% premium to the price on April the 1st, the day before Elon Musk revealed he had accumulated a 9% stake in the company. Investors in Europe shrugged off Emmanuel Macron's victory in the second round of the French presidential election, sending the stock 600 index 1.8% lower. The UK's FTSE 100 declined 1.9%. Chinese stocks, the yuan and commodities plunged on Monday as the severity of lockdowns in China increased and authorities appeared to be losing their battle to achieve societal zero COVID. 
The Shanghai Composite Index broke below the 3,000 key support level for the first time since June 2020. The benchmark index closed 5.1% lower at 2,929, the low of the day, and that was the steepest sell-off in over two years. In Shenzhen, the Composite Index there nosedived 6.5%. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index tumbled 3.7% dropping below the 20,000 level to end the day 769 points lower at 19,869. The tech index slumped 4.9%. In the commodities markets, Brink crude oil settled 4.1% lower at $102.32 a barrel on the prospect of lower demand from China, the world's largest oil importer. Gold is down 1.6% to $1,899 an ounce. In the bond markets, the US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell nine basis points to 2.82%. And the US dollar index rose half a percent to its highest level since March 2020. The euro this morning trading at $1.07. The, uh, the bucks at 128 Japanese yen. One British pound buys $1.27 and a third cents and is just below 10 Hong Kong dollars. It's at $9.99 this morning. The Chinese yuan continued its slide. Offshore yuan broke through 6.6 versus the US dollar for the first time since November 2020 before rebounding to 6.57. Onshore yuan dropped below the 6.55 mark to the lowest level in 17 months. And Bitcoin this morning is at $40,000 and $40,400. Around Asian Pacific markets uh, this morning in Australia, the ASX 200 has reopened. It was closed yesterday for a holiday. Playing catch up there, it's down 1.8%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has rebounded 0.6%. Uh, 0.6%. The Cosby's up about 0.6% as well, and futures markets indicating a rise of about 130 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Eight oh nine and a half. Let's welcome our guests in the Queensway studio. We have John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investment. Morning, John. Yes, hello. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research. Morning, Shark. Uh, morning, Peter. So Beijing, as you heard, they're on track to track to track a COVID-19 outbreak that may have been spreading in the capital for a week. It reported 21 cases for April the 21st. The city's locked down dozens of residential compounds and told inhabitants in the eastern mm. district of Chongyang, which contains the central business district, to be tested three times this week. Also, a lot of the foreign embassies are there. And last night, officials said mass testing would take place in another 11 of Beijing's 16 districts. Um, Shark, I have a question I want to ask for, uh, for you. Um, Beijing and Shanghai together, um, they're, they're, well, Shanghai is already in lockdown. Beijing seems to be heading there. What is their percentage of China's national GDP? I think uh, if you put together the... Uh, these two cities account to 7 to 8% of the national GDP. But the problem is, uh, uh, now, if you look at Shanghai, Shanghai is the in- very important manufacturing base. That means in terms of this uh, supply chain, I think the importance of the Shanghai to the uh, Chinese economy and to the global economy is much more important than this uh, 4%. I mean, the, for Shanghai, 
the percentage of the GDP. I think mm-hmm. that's uh, yeah. And and what impact then is it going to have on China's economy? Do you think this quarter? Uh, yeah, we we do think uh, if uh, the things continue like this, because initially we have a uh, Shanghai and then we have a uh, uh, Beijing. Uh, I'm afraid that Chinese GDP will be uh, very ugly <laughs> in the second quarter. Uh, we don't know the exactly uh, the estimate, but uh, I like to say that um, yeah, maybe if these things continue, maybe three yeah, percent. That's a yeah. that already very good estimate, I think. Okay, John. I mean, we're we're heading for basically two of China's largest cities in lockdown. One an industrial hub, the other one a a business and commerce uh, hub. What's the impact of this? Do you think? Uh, well, as we've seen from the, the market, pretty uh, pretty chaotic. Um, of course, it's only one of at least three major issues that um, the China economy is uh, is facing at the moment. The the, the de- property debt crisis and um, you know the cl- the crackdown or whatever you want to call it on the uh, private sector um, you know in uh, in many te- technology areas so taken together um, it's hard to come up with a with a positive uh, outlook um, until one or more of these issues is is resolved well, it could do something, mm. couldn't it? The, the Politburo is supposedly meeting on Friday mm. and it's going to discuss uh, measures to support the economy. Um, what sort of things could it could do? I mean, you mentioned the crackdown on internet companies. This has been going on for over a year now. Uh, surely it's time now to start uh, thinking about the impact on the economy and maybe, maybe easing up a bit. Is that something they could do? Uh, yes, I mean I think they need to they need to really complete the picture what the what the uh, regulatory framework is going to be in, in all the various key sectors they've been uh, looking at one by one. Um, so we really need to see um, yeah just clarity and and a, and a roadmap. I mean roadmaps are uh, are useful um, for all these all these things, including COVID. <laughs> These these crackdowns, though, which has sort of been done under the the guise of common prosperity, isn't it, which Mm. we don't hear mentioned anymore uh, these days. But nevertheless, that was the reason to try and make these sectors more competitive, uh, to increase wealth. It's really done the opposite, hasn't it? It's destroyed hundreds of billions of dollars of shareholder value. It's wiped out millions of jobs. Um, Mm. It hasn't done what it was supposed to, what it said on the tin, has it? Uh, no, I, I agree with you. Um, the, the sort of second round consequences, uh, intended and unintended, are, are very severe. Shark, what, what, can, uh, what can the Politburo do? They're going to meet on Friday, they're going to discuss economic measures, uh, support measures for the economy. What would you like to see them do? I think that now they need to stimulate from different uh, perspectives. I think uh, from these uh, infrastructure buildings, uh, definitely I think they can do more. Mm. And uh, also we expect that they can have some uh, yeah, policy to directly stimulus consumption. I mean, maybe they could uh, uh, just uh, like a Hong Kong government to, to just distribute some consumption coupons or vouchers mm. or directly uh, provide this money to, to, to mm. household. I think that definitely they need to do that. But unfortunately, uh, in the past, it seems that they are very uh, conservative when they 
uh, directly distribute money to to the people. Uh, I don't know whether they are going to do this or not, but I think uh, at uh, local government level, some rich government, I have to say, uh, maybe they can pilot this kind of a program. But for the problem is uh, for many local governments now, there are income, there are revenues that decline quite a lot because of this uh, uh, sluggish economies, uh, because of this pandemic uh, 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 campaign, all these things. So that's why I think that this uh, uh, fiscal uh, constraint limit the what they, they are doing. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, definitely they need to do that one as soon as possible. Do you think, John, that will help boosting consumption by means of cash handouts to to households, to small yeah. businesses, a little bit, bit like what we've seen sure. here? Yes, I mean, sure, it's a, it's a good quick fix to at least stem some of the uh, some of the bleeding in the short term. But um, I'm afraid that's all that's all it would be. Mm. And what about the property sector? What can be done? Uh, there, what's what sort of measures could we do to maybe try and stabilise the uh, the property sector? I think now, if you look at the uh, property sector in some different uh, uh, regions, they already already relaxed uh, these kind of the uh, purchase restrictions. But the problem is, uh, uh, if you think about this uh, property, they are very. Uh, you can see it's a big investment for for Chinese uh, household. So at this moment. Uh, uh, many people, they are not optimistic about uh, the Chinese economic outlook. They are not optimistic about their uh, their career, their, their future. So I think uh, that's why even you uh, relax uh, these uh, restrictions, uh, the, the real impact in terms of the stimulating the economy is still very limited at this moment. I think the most important thing now for Chinese authorities is try to boost people's confidence. Mm. Uh, yeah, they need to boost this consumer confidence, uh, boost this investor's confidence, uh, and more importantly, they need to draw a good roadmap uh, to, to show the Chinese how they are going to um, work out of this, uh, this, uh, this pandemic. Yeah. Mm. John, this is having a global impact as well, isn't it? I mean, if, if we start seeing a dramatic slowdown in the mainland economy, it impacts global supply chains, it impacts the global economy. Uh, yes, indeed, that's one thing. As we saw, started to see yesterday, the um, you know many uh, raw material commodity prices are starting to uh, starting to fall. Mm. Um, so I suppose you could say, um, you know, from a Western perspective, maybe there'll be this will be helpful in reducing inflation mm. um, up to point at least of, of, of import costs. But of course, if you can't if you can't ship goods in and out. Of Shanghai and uh, and wherever, then then um, you know you've still got a big problem. But the resilience of the um, U.S. economy and market in particular was once again demonstrated last night, mm. um, when most other markets sold off aggressively. Uh, the good old U.S. Uh, bounced back again. <laughs> it always does, does, doesn't it? It seems to be almost. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you think, Shark, of the impact on the global economy? I mean, last time we had, when this first started uh, in 2020, uh, the, the global economy sort of rebounded pretty well from it, didn't it, from the shock, particularly the U.S. economy. Can it do it this time? Uh, I think that if you look at this impact on global economy, first uh, 20% of the Chinese export go through Shanghai. 
so that means, uh, if uh, importantly, if other cities in China they have a similar lockdowns, uh, I think that, that will have a very significant impact on Chinese export globally. Uh, yes, I think that, uh, this time, hopefully, they can find a way to get a very quick rebound. I'm still confident that uh, the China will find a way to. To, to resume this kind of a normal operation of their uh, global supply chain. Uh, but still, uh, I don't fully agree with uh, John on the point that uh, uh, this could be have some positive impact on the global inflation. It is true if you look at these uh, commodities, uh, definitely because people worry about the Chinese demand. So the commodity price, uh, maybe they can have some relief. But unfortunately, if you look at the manufactured goods, because China is a very important exporter of manufactured goods, I'm afraid on manufactured goods, this kind of uh, uh, production or logistic uh, uh, disruption will have a negative impact on, on inflation. Yeah. Mm. John, what about the impact on the markets? We saw yesterday Chinese stocks plunge. Uh, the yuan and commodities also tumbled um, as well for stocks. Any sign that the bottom is in yet, do you think? Uh, frankly, no. And um, I, th I think, you know, we've seen the last c couple of sectors that were holding uptrends, particularly those, um, you know, energy uh, energy stocks and, and uh, mining stocks. Um, they look to, they probably peat now mm. uh, and they're going to have a correction. So, um, you know, we're sort of still rotating on the day on the way down what would you like to see um to give you confidence to start buying again uh well as i say particularly uh locally i mean we just need to see um some sign that the um you know the techn technology sector uh, in particular has um has reached the bottom is going to be able to rebuild um you know its products and markets Mm. Uh, within a so we need a positive signal um, rather than uh, at the moment we're still in a sort of um, stick rather than a carrot mode as far as I can see um, do you want to see a change in policy as well in terms of um, this zero covid policy to, to give to give investors more confidence do you think that's important um, yeah I should say that's that's the key isn't it um, but it needs to be viewed in the context of what else is going on. As I said, there's just sort of you wonder whether how much joined up thinking is going on. Um, looking at these 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 three separate issues that I've highlighted seem to be handled um, discreetly rather than you know looking at the overall picture. Mm. Um, Shark, let me ask you about the weak yuan as well because we saw offshore yuan it broke through six point six. Uh, against the dollar for the first time since November 2020. Onshore yuan uh, hit 6.55. That's the lowest level in 17 months. Do you think the PBOC is happy to let the currency slide, Shark? Uh, I think that now uh, the, the PBOC, they already start to do something. Yesterday I saw the news that uh, they lowered this uh, reserve requirement mm. for foreign uh, exchange. I think they want to inject the more... Uh, U.S. dollar liquidity into the market to do boost uh, uh, RMB exchange rate. Uh, but I think, that, as John said, uh, if, if China don't make big change on this uh, uh, zero COVID uh, policy, I'm afraid that people still worry about uh, the future uh, of, of Chinese economy. 
because uh, yeah, if you look at uh, this economic cost of this kind of uh, zero code uh, strategy, it's very very high. So I think this round of the depreciation mainly uh, due to this pandemic in in China. Because uh, even uh, before, just I think last month, uh, uh, the the exchange rate of the RMB is still very solid, right? But now they have a very fast depreciation. I think that reflect people's. Uh, uh, lack of confidence in, in Chinese economy. Yeah, John. John, what do you think? There are some positives, aren't they, from the week you're on for for companies? Uh, yes, I mean this again should be maybe viewed in the international context, of, and the dollars on a in a roaring bull market, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and partly that's obviously due to the uh, the yield gap that's opening up. So. Um, the, the higher interest rates uh, in, in in the US, uh, and that's been affecting every country, currency. We've seen major um, declines in uh, you know yen, euro, even pound uh, starting to slip. Um, Australian dollar and those those weaker commodity prices I was talking about, obviously not particularly helpful to the Australia economy viewed in isolation. Um, so. I shouldn't think uh, China will be too concerned about having a somewhat weaker yuan, but as ever, they they would they want to have a controlled slide, mm-hmm. um, and that big jump that big jump out around the weekend is, is certainly um, not something they they like to see. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's John Schofield, managing director at Tempest Investments, Lashar, chief Asia economist at BBVA Research. <laughs> You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. Time's 8.24. Let's go over to Tokyo and talk to journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. You may have heard that. We were just talking about uh, the currencies, the slide in the yuan. And, of course, the Japanese yen is also sliding quite rapidly as well. It's at a 20-year low against the dollars, come close to breaking through um, 130 uh, in the last few days. This is all actually a little bit odd, isn't it? Because normally when there's turmoil uh, in the global economy and global markets, the Japanese yen is seen as a safe haven and, uh, and rises. Uh, but not this time. What's going on? Well, for one thing, I'm afraid to look at my bank account. <laughs> look at my, uh, my my dollar equivalent holdings. Um, yeah, it's been a very disorienting moment. I think it just speaks in some ways to the upside-down nature of the global economy as we speak. As you mentioned, you know, one of the most reliable reactions in markets for years now has been the end rising at, mm. in times like this. And we're seeing exactly the opposite. I mean, some people will point out that from an interest rate differential standpoint, this makes sense to some, ex- to some extent. This is what the, the IMF is claiming, that you know, the Fed is beginning to tighten, and odds are they'll have to tighten a lot more. The Bank of Japan is actually moving in the direction of pumping more liquidity into the economy, and so in many ways you can rationalize it that way. However, you know, episodes of very sharp yen moves don't tend to end well for global markets. I mean, a lot of hedge funds have been blown up over the years from sudden yen gyrations. And with the yen down 12% this year, it's coming as global energy prices are surging, commodity prices are surging, food prices are surging. So Japan is finally getting some inflation. The problem is it's the bad kind, and there's not a lot that Japan can do about it at the moment. It also puts the Bank of Japan in a big hole, doesn't it? Because surely they can't at the same time 
keep Japanese yields, this 10-year yield, at uh, a quarter of a percent or lower, and at the same time uh, maintain stability in the yen. It can't have both at the same time. You're right. It's quite a balancing act. I mean, you know, in many ways, the you know Japanese officials spent since the last 15, 20 years micromanaging the yen very aggressively. Um, suddenly, they're micromanaging yields in the, in the debt market. The good news for the BOJ is they are they're the ultimate whale at the moment. They hold so many Japanese government bonds that they can, to some extent, control the market from getting out of you know getting out of hand, if you will, for the most part. But they will spend the next six to 12 months really obsessing over the market to keep yields from rising. Because if Japanese government bond yields rose to, say, 1%, um, that would be a very, very big event for the global economy. And at that point, you would have hedge funds around the world, you know, basically quaking in their boots because you have the yen carry trade, right? For years now, there's been this trade where everyone borrows cheaply in yen, and they basically reinvested in higher yielding assets elsewhere. If that trade goes away completely, um, that will, you know, there will be some hell to pay in assets from Australia to, you know, from to Brazil to New York. So it'll be interesting. And also, the the Bank of Japan can't afford uh, to let yields rise too much, given the amount of debt uh, Japan has. It will be disastrous, wouldn't it, for the economy? Yes, I mean Japan's debt to GDP ratio is well over two hundred and fifty percent. It is the most indebted uh, developed economy in the world. And that, you know, you can argue is a problem given Japan's demographics too, right? If you believe that Japan can figure out a way to uh, import more bodies or it can increase the birth rate in a way to finance that debt in the long run, it's not a problem. But Japan's population is shrinking year after year. And that's the difference with the U.S. The U.S. has a massive debt load, but the U.S. also generally has a stable to growing population Japan has the opposite. And so it's funny, though, everyone, I think a lot of people expected 2022 to be a quiet year for the Bank of Japan. They'd be on autopilot. Not so. <laughs> mm. So if the Bank of Japan succeeds then, keeps yields low, um, all that's going to happen is the yen's going to fall more and more, isn't it? At, at some point, uh, this is going to be quite bad uh, for, for Japanese households because, in effect, it, it erodes your real wages. Uh, and, and as we know, we've discussed many times, uh, it's been a struggle to get wages up in the first place. So this is not good for the Japanese consumer. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there is a sea change, sea change in thinking. You know, again, 10, 15 years ago, the Japanese government would be loving the fact that the yen is falling 12% in, you know, basically in just four and a half months mm. or just four months. Um, that would be a big boon for the export market. But given the global context this is happening, and it's bad for household confidence, bad for business confidence, and that is what, you know, as you mentioned, that is the big issue. Prime Minister Kishida has been talking about retooling the economy to encourage companies to increase wages and share profits with workers. That's not going to happen uh, if the yen gyrations in, in the months ahead are spooking CEOs. And mm. so we are in this very unique period for Japan where growth is reasonably stable, uh, but the outlook and the headwinds coming this way are becoming uh, more, you know, more more difficult. So does the Bank of Japan intervene to try and support the currency? It hasn't hasn't done that for a long time, has it? For for many years uh, now, does it intervene once again in the currency markets? Well, it can do that, but I think it risks failing without having support from other countries. You know, uh, basically, Finance Minister Suzuki when he was dealing with the group of 20 officials in Washington over the weekend, he did seem to be trying to rally some support for intervention, which 
didn't happen. And Japan's in a situation right now where the Bank of Japan could suddenly step in and buy lots of yen. But unless you get the Federal Reserve, the ECB, or a major central bank on the other end of the transaction helping out, it lacks credibility. In some ways, the yen could fall more. So at the moment, I think the BOJ is just taking a wait-and-see approach towards things, hoping, you know, towards things hoping for the best, uh, because they are kind of out of options at the moment. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan right now, the Nikkei 225 has lost its gains uh, from earlier this morning. It's now flat. The SX200 is slipping further, down two and a quarter uh, percent. The Cosby uh, is up about a third of a percent. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng Index is going to open probably around about 100 points higher at the open later on this morning. That's it for me. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for the COVID updates after the news with Jim Gordon, Ada Wong. The weather forecast today, uh, mainly fine. Maximum temperature around 32 degrees. Going to stay fine and hot in the next few days and the temperatures will be slightly lower next Sunday and Monday. Temperature right now is 27 degrees and it's 81% relative humidity. Times 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The government says it expects around 160,000 employers to apply for the latest round of pandemic wage subsidies under its employment support scheme. It opens for applications on Friday. The head of the government's Policy Innovation and Coordination Office, Doris Ho, says tougher penalties are in place to ensure the money goes to workers and that companies maintain or increase headcount. She addressed concerns that the scheme came too late to help firms that had already shut down. We cannot help all companies with one single scheme. I think the main objective of the 2022 ESS is to provide wage subsidies to employers to help retain jobs or even increase employment when the epidemic situation permits. We would very much hope to see that the 2022 ESS can complement other measures under the anti-epidemic fund and the consumption vouchers to stimulate consumption demand and inject vitality into our economy when Hong Kong is struggling to rebuild its economy from the fifth wave. The world's richest man, Elon Musk, has clinched a deal to buy Twitter for 44 billion U.S. dollars. In a joint statement, the two sides said they wanted to make the social media platform better than ever and stressed the importance of free speech. Twitter had initially rejected Mr. Musk's advances. Its board has now recommended the sale to its shareholders. Vivian Schiller, the former global chair of news at Twitter, says she has concerns about Mr. Musk's deal. The things that he said so far, which is very limited, about, you know, changing Twitter into a free speech zone and his lack of follow through on being able to explain exactly what he means by that has me very concerned. You know, I think there's a level of naivete when it comes to how he's going to, quote unquote, fix Twitter. I don't think I think he's in for a world of hurt. The businessman and philanthropist Osman Kavala has been sentenced to life in prison without parole in Turkey after being found guilty of attempting to overthrow the government. The ruling was met with boos from a packed courtroom. Rights groups have condemned it as a travesty of justice. Mr. Kavala has already spent four and a half years behind bars. Gunay Yildiz from the human, human rights group Amnesty International told the BBC the ruling would deter dissent within Turkey. 
He's the highest profile detainee in Turkey and his continuing arrest and his uh, now uh, sentencing is a, a very strong message to the business community because he's also a businessman and a message to the civil society and human rights defenders. So people would, would think, actually, I heard uh, several civil society actors saying this to me, that if this happens to Kavala, what can happen to us? What can uh, protect us in terms of uh, international outcry? The news from RTHK. 